I want you to imagine a, a party. Imagine a celebration. And there's essentially two groups in this party. Uh, one group is having a great time. They're, they're eating and they're, they're having a great time celebrating and talking to one another. And they're even drinking some. And, and they're having a wonderful time. Contrasted with that is the other group, which are very stoic in their nature, very uh, long-faced almost in their approach. In fact, they're kind of looking down on this other group, judging them and and criticizing them for all their their merriment and and, uh, fun that they're having at this party. And, And that's the scene I want you to picture, because that's essentially the scene that we pick up in when we get to to Luke chapter 5. Turn with me again back to Luke chapter 5 in your Bibles. And I think we'll understand a little bit more about um, what's going on here. And so, to, to understand it, I think it's always good to have an understanding of the context and what transpired before this party that was happening. And so, here in, in Luke chapter 5, starting in about verse, um, uh, verse ooh, where would it be? Uh, verse 12, I guess it was, Jesus was, was preaching in a house. And while he was, he was teaching to a, to a group of people that had gathered there, uh, some men that were friends of a paralytic decided to try to bring this paralytic to Jesus. But they figured that they didn't have tickets to get into the house, so they couldn't come in through the door. So they decided to devise a plan where they went up onto the rooftop and then they, they cleared away the roof and lowered their friend before Jesus. And Jesus, marveling at their faith that they would be willing to go to such uh, lengths to get this guy healed, he heals him. Except he doesn't heal them in the way that they were expecting. He says to them, your sins are forgiven. And so here's this lame man who's forgiven. But you see, the issue is God was going to the deeper issue. God was really trying to, to go deeper than just heal this man's uh, physical illnesses. He wanted to deal with the issue between him and God on a spiritual realm. Well, now the Pharisees there, they were shocked at hearing this. Now, you and I were not so surprised to hear that Jesus forgave sins because... I mean, we know that, right? I mean, we know how Luke turns out and all the other Gospels and what Jesus said on the cross. But you have to put yourself in these people's shoes. This, the cross hadn't happened yet. For when they saw Jesus, all they saw was a man. They didn't recognize the Son of God. They didn't recognize that one of the things Jesus did when He came to earth was to forgive man's sins. They just saw a man. And for a man to come up and declare, your sins are forgiven, that's blasphemy. And so they began to grumble and complain that this man, he, he forgives sins. This is blasphemy for only God can do this. And Jesus, hearing this, knowing this, he says, you really think you don't understand who I am and the power and authority that I have? And so he decides to prove his authority by healing the lame man. And so the paralytic gets up and walks and you can just imagine the stun and the awe that these Pharisees have. Jesus leaves the house and he, he walks down the street a little bit and then he sees Levi in the tax collector's booth. And I love how the scripture says in verse 27, he noticed Levi. He noticed Levi. It wasn't Levi was waving his hand and saying, hey, hey, Jesus, over here. He noticed Levi. We know Levi is Matthew, the, the author of the, the Gospel of Matthew. And he noticed Levi, the tax collector in the tax collector booth. What do you think Levi was doing, by the way? Any guesses? I know we're in church, but you can talk. It's okay. Any guesses on what he was doing? Collecting taxes, right? He probably wasn't, you know, preaching a sermon. He probably wasn't doing some, uh, you know, praying. He probably wasn't uh, uh, ministering to anybody. I mean, he was probably doing his job. Collecting taxes. 
also known as stealing from people. Because <laughs> that's what tax collectors would have done. They would have overtaxed in order to, po- to line their own pockets. And that's what they would have done. And so here he would have been, this Jew, also not just stealing from his own people, but essentially betraying his people by collecting taxes for the Romans. So here is this traitor, this probably a thief, this tax collector, this person that everyone despised, and Jesus noticed him and says, well, come join me. Come follow me. Come be my disciple." Now imagine these Pharisees here who are, have witnessed this, this awesome statement that Jesus makes about this, this, man's, this other man's sins being forgiven and now they see Jesus choosing this tax collector to be part of his team. How do you think they're feeling? I think they're feeling royally snubbed. I mean, I want you to picture um, a professor who's choosing his grad students and essentially, this professor chooses the grad student that flunked out of high school uh, over and above all those students that graduated with honors degrees. How do you think those guys with the honors degrees are feeling? Because these religious leaders, these Pharisees, are probably thinking, if this godly man is going to choose anyone to be part of his team, well, it would be us. We are, after all, the most qualified. But this tax collector, I, I think they just couldn't understand that they wouldn't be part of this, that they wouldn't be included in this. And so I think they felt all upset and, and, and annoyed by this. But Matthew, he's overjoyed. So what does Matthew decide to do? He throws a party. <laughs> right? He's just so excited. He throws a party and he invites all his tax collector friends. Because as a tax collector, your friends would be other tax collectors. You wouldn't have anyone else. So he invites all his other tax collectors' friends to come to this party so they too can meet this Jesus that has just invited Matthew to leave everything, which he did. And so that's the scene that we have in this party. Here is that, that over, uh, overjoyed, that exciting group really is the tax collectors and the sinners. And part of that group of eating and drinking and having a wonderful time are Jesus and his disciples. Whereas the other group, well, that's the Pharisees. Now, I don't know if the Pharisees were invited to the party. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Maybe they just crashed the party. But either way, whether they're invited or not, I think the reason they only came was to continue to pass judgment upon Jesus and what He was doing. To look down their noses upon these other followers. To try to find fault with Jesus in order to justify themselves. And so when they see Jesus and His followers having this great time and eating and drinking and just being merry, they begin to grumble again. But this time, they don't grumble to Jesus. They grumble to His other disciples. And He says... They say to him, what's he doing? Why is he eating and drinking? John the Baptist, he doesn't do that with his disciples. We don't do that as Pharisees. Why do you do that? And Jesus' answer is very very telling. In verse... uh, Verse... Verse 31, Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And right here we begin to see the difference between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. You see, the the New Covenant and the Old Covenant is really what I think Jesus is trying to get at here and and understanding that there's there's a huge difference between the two. The Pharisees really are, are representations of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was, the the thinking of that was that God came to save those who did well. God came to save those whose performance matched the criteria. 
Those who lived good lives, who performed well, and, and lived whole and pure lives. God came to rescue those people. But Jesus says, that's not the way. I have not come to save the, right, the righteous, but I have come to call the sinners to repentance. And you see, that's the new covenant. The new covenant really is made up of the tax collectors and the sinners. And the reality is, the difference between the Pharisees and tax collectors really is there's none. Except the tax collectors know they're sinners. The Pharisees didn't. And so the Pharisees, their mindset was, we can do this. We can earn from God our salvation through what we do in our performance. It was really based on the, up to them and their own performance, out of their own self. But the new covenant is something completely different. The new covenant is based solely on what Jesus has done. What Jesus has come to bring and to rescue us. Those who couldn't be rescued. I've come to call the sinners to repentance, he says. And so that's the glory of the new covenant. But <clears throat> the Pharisees, they couldn't understand this. They couldn't wrap their mind around this. And they just couldn't understand what was going on here. And so Jesus is going to go on to tell, tell a parable, I think, to, to help them understand more about what's happening here. And so I share all that beforehand as really just the introduction, just kind of the preamble. So if you're kind of checking out a little bit and you know, thinking about NFL season starting later on today or your garden or, or work or, or you know, the roast that's in the oven, tune back in because, because this is where we're going to get, I think, to the rubber meets the road. Because here's, here's the meat, I think, of what Jesus is trying to get at. And he, he starts to, to challenge these Pharisees, I think, in their thinking and trying to, to help them understand the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so here he gives a parable, or he gives two parables, and the first one he gives is regarding the clothing. In verse 36, and he says, He was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old garment. Otherwise, he will both Tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So he starts off with this, this story of clothing. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't have pre-shrunken cotton pants and you know pre-shrunken wool sweaters and so forth. The way that, that they would have had is, is their clothes would shrink over time as it was being exposed to water and to uh, and, and, and to the heat, which would be great, you know, if you think about it. You know, my waist is getting big. No, no, it's just my clothes are shrinking over time. I'm, it's not my problem, right? So it would be a great excuse, I guess. But what Jesus is saying is you would never take an, an old garment with a hole in it and then put a brand new piece of uh, a garment for a patch. Because what would happen is the old clothing, that's not going to shrink anymore. But the new, the new patch, that will shrink. And what will happen is it will begin to tear and rip away from the old garment. And so here's what Jesus is saying to them. That the difference between the old and new is you don't just patch up the old. I haven't come to just fix the old covenant. I've come to replace it. And that's what the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8 makes so clear in verse 13 when he says that the old covenant has become obsolete. What does obsolete mean? Well, it no longer applies. It's obsolete to be replaced with something new. And you see, that's such a key difference because I, I meet so many Christians from so many different denominations and I don't think we understand that very well. What we end up doing is we mix these two covenants, the old and the new. 
You see, we've mastered the understanding of how we get saved. We've mastered the understanding of being introduced to salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. That no one could boast, not based on our works, but solely based on what Jesus did on the cross. We understand that for salvation. And so we understand a new covenant and, uh, salvation in a way. We understand how to get into the family solely based on what Jesus did on the cross. But now what? And this is where I think a lot of Christians begin to, to question and, and wonder. Well, my, my past is taken care of, but what, and my future is dealt with, but what about today? My sins are dealt with. I'm secure going to heaven, but now what? How do I live today? And so we have this huge gap and this huge void and we don't know what to do with it. And so what ends up happening is we drift back into the old covenant. And we mix the two. We try to put a new patch onto the old covenant. And in effect, what we end up with is a souped up version of Judaism. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what's Judaism in effect? Judaism, in effect, is the Old Covenant, right? It's a system by which I work, I follow a list of rules, I do my best, and when I fail, I offer a sacrifice, a lamb. Receive that forgiveness from God, and then what? Try again. Try to do my best to follow the same list of rules that I couldn't do in the first place, but hopefully I'll do better this time. And when I fail, not if, but when I fail, what do I do? Offer the sacrifice. Receive forgiveness and try again. That's essentially what the Old Covenant is. I mean, if you have any Jewish friends, that's what they do. And it is all about works. It's all about what they do. And when they fail, receive forgiveness, but then work again. And what do we have today? Yes, we're saved by grace in the church. We're saved by what Jesus did on the cross. And now what? We have a list of rules we follow. We follow these rules, we do our best, and when we fail, we offer our sacrifice. Our sacrifice is Jesus. He's the Lamb. And then we try again. And essentially, all we've done is we've just inserted Jesus as the, as the Lamb into the Old Covenant. And so we really haven't changed covenants. We've just made Jesus that Lamb in the Covenant. But Jesus and the New Covenant are far greater. Far more. And so he's trying to say to them, I'm not just going to patch up the Old Covenant. You're looking at what I'm teaching and what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying to you guys and trying to understand it in your Old Covenant paradigm, your Old Covenant thinking, and it simply will not work. I live in a New Covenant thinking, and that's what he's trying to say to these people and express to these people, and you can't mix the two because they just don't exist. They, they rip apart. So what's the Old Covenant, or what's the New Covenant, really? How, how, does, how do we understand that? Well, before we get to understand the New Covenant, let's take a look at the second parable that Jesus shares. And that's in verse 37. And he goes on and says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the, skills, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be placed into fresh wineskins. Now, we need to have an understanding of wineskins again. Just like in Jesus' day, he didn't have pre-shrunken clothes. We, we don't tend to have wineskins. And, and on the front of your bulletin is a great picture of what a wineskin would look like. Essentially, a wineskin would be made of some kind of animal skin that they would sew together to seal up and then they would put in wine. 
And what you'd want to do is want to put new wine into new wineskins because a new wineskin was still stretchable, flexible, it had a lot of elasticity in it. And that's important because when that wine would go in, as it would ferment, it would begin to expand. And you want something that would be able to withstand that kind of pressure. Something that would be able to hold up. And with the new wineskins, it would be able to stretch and withstand that kind of pressure due to the fermenting wine. But if you ever put new wine into old wineskins, you'd have trouble. Because the old wineskins would be so brittle, they'd be so hard, they wouldn't be able to stretch anymore. And so as that new wine began to ferment and the pressure began to, to build, what would happen to the wineskin? It began to burst and you would lose all your wine. And so you'd never put new wine into old wineskins. Because the old wineskins could never contain the new wine. So the question is, what's the wine and what do the wineskins represent? Well, to understand that, let's take a look at a prophecy in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 uh, we're going to read here a, a prophecy of the New Covenant. One that Jesus, I think, was teaching at this time and is now brought in. The one that has replaced, has made obsolete the Old Covenant. Not just bandaged it up and fixed it, but one that's now completely different. And so, Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. God, God is the one that's speaking. And that's crucial as we come later on. In verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Incredible. Now, again, I'm so grateful that I, I live in the New Testament times. I live in the New Covenant times. Because I've got the Scriptures now. I've got the New Testament to help interpret the Old Testament. If, if I didn't have the New Testament keys to understand the Old Testament, I think I'd be pretty lost. But in the New Testament, we get the, the insight as to what is the clean water. What's the clean water? It's the blood of Jesus. Right? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. The blood of Jesus was shed to forgive us of how many of our sins? All of them. And you are now clean. You are now pure. Incredible. In, my, in, the, in our ministry, I get to deal with many people who struggle with guilt, who struggle with shame. And, and we, we, read, we sang about it earlier today, about how we're trading in our shame. We're trading it in. We're trading in our guilt. Why? Because God has made us clean. He has made us pure. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? And, and we know that as Christians. Again, like I said, we've kind of mastered understanding salvation. But you see, that's just the introduction to grace. That's just the beginning. It doesn't end there. It just starts there. You see, what's the very first word in verse 26? Moreover. And I love how God does this. It's almost like He's saying, don't stop reading in verse 25. The, the salvation message is more than just getting your sins forgiven. It's more than just being made pure and clean. There's more. Moreover, on top of that, what does He do? 
Moreover, in verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, man had a deeper problem than just needing the forgiveness of sins. Man was born with a heart defect. Right? Man was born dead to God. His heart was as cold and as dead as a stone is. His heart was dead to God, but it was very much alive unto sin. It was wicked. It was evil. We were children of wrath, it says in Ephesians. And in Jeremiah 17.9, it says, The heart of man is beyond cure. Our heart was terminal. There is no fixing our hearts. There is no healing our hearts. There is no binding up our hearts. It is beyond cure. And God knows that. And so what does God do? Instead of trying to fix the old heart, He exchanges it. Moves the old in order to replace it, to exchange it for a new one. And so we receive now a new heart. And this is what's so, so incredibly told to us and revealed to us then in Romans 6. Where Paul, I think, is trying to reveal to us more about the new covenant. In Romans 6, in verse 3, Paul says, Do you not know that when you were placed into Christ, talking about salvation, you were also placed into His death? So in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man, our old self, was crucified with Him. You see, far more than just Jesus dying for your sins happened on that cross. What happened to you and I on that cross? Well, we were crucified too. We were crucified with Christ. The old heart, the old sinful nature, the old person you used to be was placed into Christ, crucified with Christ, buried... And then raised again, but now as someone new. With a new heart. With a new desires. You became a whole new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 A very popular verse in Christian artwork with butterflies and such. They often put it with butterflies really because they think of the message of what it's trying to say. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has... Passed away. When do we use terminology passed away? When somebody dies, right? Behold, the old has died and the new has come. Not will come. The new has come. Past tense. You already are a new creation if you're in Christ. If you have received Jesus Christ and He lives in you, the old is gone. You don't have to try to die. You are dead. It's done. Our old man was crucified. Now you're someone new. A whole new creation. And you see, that's what Jesus was trying to say to them. You don't put the new wine into old wineskins because the old wineskins would burst. It can't contain it. And so God takes away the old wineskin. That was your heart in order to give you a brand new wineskin, a new heart. And then he can't put his life in that old covenant economy. He's got to put it in a new covenant economy with a new heart and a new life. And so he makes us someone new. We are now different people with new desires, with new want-tos. We now actually desire to love. We now desire to, to, to see God, to love God, and to love others. 
because of the new heart, the new desires He's given to us. But He's not done there. You see, if we understand that our new heart, this is a new wineskin, well, what's the wine that Jesus talks about? Well, that I think is in verse 27. You see, what's the first, verse, first word in verse 27? And. Again, what's He saying? I'm not done yet. Don't stop. Don't think that, that the New Covenant is just forgiveness of sin. Don't think the New Covenant is just about being a new person. Oh, it's more. And I, and who's the I? That's God. I, God, will put my Spirit within you. Now, if that doesn't blow your socks off, and read it again. Because I think... I think sometimes in our churches we get we hear truth and it, it, it numbs us. We lose sight of the power of it. Jesus is Lord. God loves you. You are pure. You are clean. We lose sight of some of that power. And hear this one where I will put my spirit within you. Jesus lives in you. Often loses its power. But if, if you aren't struck by the awesome wonder of God living in you, then maybe you don't understand what that means. And that's okay. It took me a long time to understand what that means. I had been a Christian for over 20 years before I understood what that meant. When my oldest was four, she used to think Jesus lived in her heart so he could watch the food go down. And for 20 years, I couldn't have given you a better answer than that. I didn't know. But look what the verse says. God says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my ways. I will cause you to obey my ordinances. Which is essentially what? To love. To love God with all you got and to love your neighbor as you, as you love yourself. That's essentially what His ordinances and His ways are. It's all about love. But He will be the source. He will be the one to do it through you and I. It's not about what you and I can do, but about letting Jesus be Jesus in you and I. And letting Him live His supernatural life through you and I. And thereby accomplishing His purposes, which is one of love. But you see, for the Pharisees, they couldn't understand that. You see, the new wine essentially is the life of Jesus. And so he says, I can't put my new life into an old covenant economy because an old covenant economy is all about you and your performance and what you do. But a new covenant economy, it's all about me and what I do, Jesus says. And so I will put my new life into your new heart when the old has been crucified. I'll put my new life into you so that I can live my life through you. This is what Paul was getting at in Galatians 2.20 where he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You see, God got rid of the old me in order to put His new life in me so He could live His life through me. And that doesn't work in an old covenant economy. See, the old covenant economy is about performance of self. The new covenant economy is about the performance of Jesus in and through me. Does that make sense? So he says, I'll put my new wine in you. Let me see if I can illustrate this to you. Very, very silly illustration. 
Um, shepherds. What do shepherds look after? Shout it out. Sheep. What is the mortal enemy of all sheep and therefore shepherds? Why? What do wolves do? They eat sheep. Why do wolves eat sheep? Real, yeah, it's their nature. Really simple, right? It's just who they are, right? Wolves' nature, by definition, is to eat sheep, right? So I want you to picture a shepherd now. He's walking down the path. And, and as he's walking down this path, he sees this wolf that's been beaten up and left for dead by these other wolves. And this shepherd, with all his flock behind him, is a gentle shepherd. He's a loving shepherd. And he sees this wolf and he can't bear to let this wolf die. And so he cares for the wolf. He nurses the wolf back to health. But now he has a problem. You see, he's fallen in love with this wolf. And he can't bear to let the wolf go. But what do wolves do? Eat sheep. And he's got a whole bunch of them. And it's his job to protect them. And so he needs to look after the sheep, but he loves the wolf. And so he begins to think, I know what I'll do. I'll reform the wolf. That's what I'll do. I'll reform the wolf. So he grabs the wolf and he sits down the wolf and explains now to the wolf, there's a whole new system of rules to live by. Wolf, I love you and I accept you, but you know what? You can't eat the sheep anymore. Uh, they don't like it. I don't like it. And, and it's not good. Uh, in fact, I don't want you to eat sheep. Uh, and so he, it's more than, he doesn't want to just give them, don't do this. He wants to give them the reasons behind it. And he says, if you don't eat the sheep, and instead I want you to eat grass, you know, you'll find your cholesterol is lower. You'll have shinier fur. You'll sleep better at night. You'll have better bowel movements. You'll just feel healthier. You'll have more spring in your step. Okay? So he gives them all the reasons about why to follow the rules as well. So he gives them the rules, reasons why the rules, and gives them the alternative, eat grass. What do you think the wolf does the moment the shepherd turns his back? Eat the sheep. Why? He knows the rules. Why would he do it? It's still his nature. It's who he is, right? Well, the wolf, you know, he, he's sorry about what he's done, so he looks at the shepherd with his vest. I don't know if it's puppy dog or puppy wolf eyes, how it works, but he, he, he looks to the, the shepherd with apologies and asking for forgiveness, and the shepherd grants that. But he says, well, we can't have you eating sheep anymore. So he thinks, well, what am I going to do? I know you don't look like the other, other sheep. So he takes the wolf and trims his hair and gives him a bad perm and throws some flour on him so he's a little bit white and trims his tail and says, well, you know, you kind of look like the other sheep. And then he also says, but you need to talk like the other sheep. So he, he gets him to, to learn how to speak like the other sheep. And, and so his ba has a bit of an accent, but it's not so bad. You can understand it for the most part. And so he, you know, he speaks with a bit of an accent, but you can get it. He looks like the other sheep. He reminds him again of the rules. Reminds him why he should obey the rules, the advantages behind it. And what does the wolf do the moment the shepherd turns his back? Why? Why does he eat more sheep? Because that's his nature. It's who he is. Well, he's not done yet either. Shepherd, he's you know, a determined guy. So he grabs the wolf and he says, okay, this is what I want you to do. I, I, I got a bracelet for you. And it says, WWLD. And whenever you're in a situation, I want you to think, what would Lamb Chop do? Okay? And just whenever you find a situation, what you think, what would Lamb Chop do? And then you go do what Lamb Chop would do. So he thinks, okay, fine. So he knows the rules. He looks like the other sheep. And he's walking along. And he, he sees the sheep. And what's he tempted to do? Eat it. And he's, wait, 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 wait. And he looks at the, the bracelet and goes, what would lamb chop do? What would lamb chop do? What would lamb chop taste like? Oh, a little bit of applesauce. Oh, that would be so good. And guess what he does? Eats lamb chop. <laughs> right? Why? 
That's his nature. Shepard's still determined, not done yet. You know, he's, he's a fighter, this guy. So he grabs the, now the, the wolf and he decides to get, you know, a group of other sheep together. He says, okay, wolf, this, these, these sheep, they're going to be your accountability group. Whenever you feel tempted, I want you to come to these people and they're going to pray for you. They're going to read from this book. It's called The Shepherd's Guide. And it tells you all about what to do and not to do and how to live. And they're going to encourage you and they're going to remind you about the rules. So guess what happens when he's tempted? He gets his accountability group together. Guess what he does? He has a buffet. <laughs> right? Eats the whole thing, all of them all at once. Why? What's the problem here? It's his nature. And no amount of changing his behavior, no amount of rules or, or guidelines will ever reform the wolf. Because the problem with the wolf is not what he does, it's who he is. And you see, the problem in the Old Covenant is the Pharisees didn't understand that. Pharisees thought, if we change what we do, we'll be okay. God says, you don't know what kind of a mess you're in. You don't understand the heart defect you have. You don't know the problems, not what you do, it's but who you are. And that's what you need to be rescued from. So the shepherd finally understands this. And this time now what he does is he gets his perfect lamb. And he gets the wolf. And he brings them together. And he's got two needles. And these needles, they don't just withdraw blood, they withdraw the very life, the very nature of an animal. So he sticks the one into the lamb and he withdraws all the lamb life out of the lamb. What happens to the lamb? He dies. Then he takes the other needle and he sticks it into the wolf and he withdraws all the wolf life out of the wolf. What happens to the wolf? He falls over dead. He buries that wolf life never to see the light of day again. It is destroyed. It is gone. And now he's got a dead lamb and a dead wolf and one needle of lamb life. And he sticks it into the lamb, puts half the life back into the lamb. What happens to the lamb? He comes back to life. Then he takes the other half and he puts it into the wolf. And what happens to the wolf? He comes back to life. But now, what kind of a life does he have? He has now the life of the lamb. You see, a wolf in sheep clothing is still a wolf. But if you have a lamb in wolf clothing, you have a Lamb. You see, you and I, we were wolves. We were by nature children of wrath. Who we were was the problem. So God rescued us from ourselves on the cross where He did more than forgive your sins. He crucified you and I. He buried you and I. But He raises up with, as new creations and poured His new wine into the new wineskin. He put His life into you and I, the life of the perfect Lamb. And now, how can we act? How can we live? Out of His life, depending upon Him, He can live His perfect life through us. doesn't mean we'll do it all the time that way. But that's the opportunity that is before us. As we trust in Him. As we depend upon Him. And that's what God's wanting to do now. He's wanting to live His life through you and I. But the problem is, when that wolf is walking by the river and he looks into the water, who does he see? He sees a wolf with a bad perm, right? He might think, I'm just still a wolf. And how would he live then? Like a wolf. But what does he need to remember? No, the wolf died. And the wolf no longer lives. 
But now the lamb lives inside of me. And I need to let that lamb out. You see, that's how we apply this. See, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Well, what's my part then? What's my role in all this? So that's the second half of the verse. Paul says, in the life that I now live in this body, the life that I now live today, in between my past and eternity, the life that I live right now, I live by faith. I live by dependence. I live by trusting in the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. I put my trust in Jesus Christ to do his work through me. So when it comes to going to work on, on tomorrow, tomorrow on Monday, when it comes to going home today and dealing with your family, deal with your kids, we recognize, Lord, I cannot love my family, I cannot love my coworkers, I cannot love the people you bring across my path in, in any way. I can't do it. But you can. And so I choose to trust in you to let you do that through me. And we, we become now the vessel by which God can work through in this world. And what an incredible, incredible privilege that is. What an incredible opportunity that is to be a part of this. But there's a warning. And that's why I want to, I want to conclude with this warning because I think Jesus gave us a warning. Because for so many of us, we try to mix the two. We try to take entrance into salvation with the new covenant economy, but now we return back to the old. And we get used to that way of thinking, that way of living. And Jesus gives us a warning here. Back to our, our, our passage in Luke. In Luke chapter 5, verse 39, he says this, And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Do you remember the audience that Jesus was talking to? He was talking to a group of Pharisees. A group who were trying to understand Jesus' teachings from an old, old covenant economy. From a self-generated performance. One that was based on their efforts. And Jesus is saying to them, here's the warning, guys. Too many people settle for that kind of living. Too many people settle for that kind of comfort. Because... There's a sense of power. There's a sense of control. There's a sense of, I can do this. And Jesus says, too many people settle for that. Do not settle. Do not settle for anything less than the pure new covenant. Do not settle for anything except for Jesus plus nothing. It's all about Him. It's all about what He can do through you. Not what you can do for Him. Because in John 15, 5, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. One day I looked up the Greek word for nothing. You know what it means? It means nothing. Go figure. <laughs> right? Meaning, apart from Him, we can do nothing. That doesn't mean we can't do anything. Oh, we can do a whole lot. Just how much is it worth? Nothing. So we place our faith in Him. Recognize that we are crucified with Christ and allow Him to live His supernatural life through you and I.